As we were singing those words just a moment ago, it occurred to me that there have been a number of times in my life when I didn't, I didn't believe myself to have ever been a slave. I don't know that I was ever afraid. And as I stood there and I sang those words, I thought, you should have been. Perhaps I loved slavery. Perhaps I liked the life that I had back in Egypt. And that the path and the life of freedom that God has called me to, it just wasn't, wasn't what I wanted. And I, I praise God in those moments as I, as I hope that you did as well. That I'm able to look backwards now and I'm able to hate that old life and I'm able to relish the new. I'm able to truly praise him and celebrate him and thank him. That he's called me out of darkness and into light. So last week, as we continued walking through the, the early portion of Jesus' earthly ministry, we talked about this call that he made as he headed north from Judea up towards Galilee. And then there in Galilee, he made this call. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in this gospel. This was a call for many people. Anyone along the way could have heard this call. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that by repenting, by believing in this gospel, you too may come into this kingdom. That this kingdom was meant for people that would repent, people that would believe. And through that repentance and through that belief, they would be saved. They would be called citizens of this heavenly kingdom. This kingdom that had come and yet was still coming. Now we don't know. The Bible doesn't record for us exactly how many people Jesus preached this gospel to. We don't know exactly how many people reached this, this point of hearing this message in their life. But we know that surely it was a multitude. We read in John's gospel that the Pharisees took note of the fact that Jesus had made more disciples and baptized more people than John the Baptist. So Jesus has clearly preached this, this message of repentance and belief. He had made this call, this general call, this gospel call to just a multitude of people. And some people received it. Some people repented. Some people believed. Some people were baptized. Some people took hold of this kingdom. Some people didn't. Many people didn't. They considered it for a while. They weighed it against the old life they had. They weighed it against what they had in the law. And they decided it just wasn't for them. There were other people that just outright rejected it. They heard the message. It wasn't impressive to them. It didn't speak to them. And so they walked away. See, there had been other messiahs. There had been other false messiahs. People that had come, they had claimed to be the messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. There was other people that had come along and they had promised that they were ushering in the kingdom of God. They all proved to be liars or lunatics. What was going to make this man any different? Why were they going to follow after this man? Surely he was going to perish like the rest. And so we find that there's very few that actually followed after him. Many heard the call. Many were called, but few were chosen. There are very few that heeded this word and that followed after with repentance and faith. And so we return this morning to the early, the early portion of Jesus' earthly ministry. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. As we read together from Mark's gospel, the first chapter, we read verses 16 through 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in a boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? 
And would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So each of the synoptic gospels, they begin talking about, they begin recording Jesus' earthly ministry right here in Galilee. But as we've talked about in some weeks past, John went backwards a little bit. John talked about some of what Jesus did there in Jerusalem, that he had gone south into Judea, into Jerusalem for the first Passover during this stretch of three years. And that while there, he met with a man named Nicodemus. While there, he had cleansed the temple. While there, he had caught the attention of the religious leaders. But it wasn't yet time for his death. The appointed time had not yet come. It was not yet time for him to be crucified and to be put to death. He wasn't ready to hand over his life at this moment, and so he headed back. You remember this? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to give you a flow for Jesus' life. I'm trying to remind you that these aren't just vignettes. These aren't just, these aren't just these, these pictures where Jesus just zooms himself over here and then now he's here. He was a real man living in a real land, living a real life. He had to walk the places that he went. Imagine that. The Son of God having to walk for days to get to the next spot that he was headed to. And so I'm hoping that as I continue to walk you through this, you'll just kind of see the flow of Jesus' life. You'll recognize that he was actually living amongst people. He was traveling the way they were traveling. He was eating the food that they were eating. And so, as we read, he's, he's come back into Galilee. And that while there in Galilee, the, the first place he visited was, was Cana upon his return. And he was there in Cana, the place where he had attended that wedding. And he had, he had done his first miracle, turning the water into the wine. And while there, he had met a, a royal official. This royal official told him that his son was deathly ill, um, was, was, was deathly ill back home. And so he comes to Jesus, knowing something about Jesus, knowing that this man is a miracle worker and that perhaps he could, he could heal his son back in Capernaum. And so Jesus, without even laying eyes on the boy, just with a word, he heals him. Then he goes to Nazareth, Nazareth, his hometown. And, and while there in Nazareth, he went to the synagogue and he was teaching there and he, he opens up the Isaiah scroll and he reads about the anointed one, the Christ, and, and proclaims, this man is me. Well, the people there, they wanted more than that. They wanted more than words. They wanted some miracles. They said, look, we've heard about what you did with this other guy's son. Why don't you do some miracles here? Why would you free this other guy's son? Why would you heal this other guy's son if you won't do that here in your hometown? Well, they didn't like his answer. And so they drag him out to a cliff with the intention of throwing him off the cliff and taking his life. But the scripture tells us that Jesus, he just passed right through and he headed on to a place called Capernaum, a place that would be his home for most of his, most of his earthly ministry. So Capernaum is an interesting place. Capernaum is a, is a town on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's really more north than west. But it's a, it's a town up on the northern side of, 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 of the Sea of Galilee, and it's built on uh, basalt. It's this, um, it's this really dark, black, volcanic rock. And so it's really pretty to look at, but you don't want to walk on it without shoes on, and you don't want to fall and skin your knees. It will tear you up. But this is a little town just right up there on the northern side of Galilee. And, 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 and what you'll find is that as you can go down, it kind of just gently, gently slopes down to the Sea of Galilee, and there's no sand there, it's just rocks. But you can just walk right off into the Sea of Galilee if you wanted to. There's a big synagogue there in, uh, in Capernaum, and it's still standing today. It was one of the most intact synagogues we saw during our, trap, but there's a, during our trip. But there's this big synagogue there, and that would have been a place that we're pretty confident Jesus taught in, and we're going to read about that in the weeks to come. But the most interesting thing to me in that entire town was a house. There was one house right there in Capernaum. This house was a little bit bigger than the other ones, but people a whole lot smarter than me, they tell me that's the house that Peter lived in with his brother Andrew and with his, with his mother-in-law, that this was a house that Jesus stayed in, and that after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, that this was one of the very first house churches. You see, they had plastered over the walls, and you can see inscriptions in the walls, words like, Jesus is Lord, or like a cross, it references the name of Peter. And so you're standing there looking. Look, we saw a lot of incredible stuff in Israel. There was something about Capernaum that just felt right. 
listen, Jesus doesn't need me to feel right about the places. But this was one of those times you were walking and you were just going, I am where Jesus was. Now the bummer is, the Roman Catholic Church got a hold of it. And what do they do with everything? They built this monstrosity on top of it. So you've got to now duck down. That's great, Catholics. Thanks for that. I want to see this. No offense if you're Catholics. Stop doing that. How about this? If you find yourself in ownership of Peter's house, you don't need to do anything else to it. It's, 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 an, it's an incredible place. It really is. It's just a, it's a, it's a fascinating place. And so we read that, that, we, we read that that's, that's where Peter was. That's where Andrew was. That's where his mother was. And, and that that's where, where Jesus had, had lived much of his time. And so this, this, is, this is Capernaum. And so we read here that Jesus was there and he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And now the word sea can be a little bit a little bit deceptive when we're talking about Galilee. You see, the, the Sea of Galilee is actually seven miles by 16 miles at its widest. Lake Superior, just as a comparison, is 350 by 160 miles. So the Sea of Galilee is actually more like a freshwater lake, not even a big lake at that. And what you find there is, 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 you, is you go to the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's, it's bordered on either side by mountains. On the east and on the west, it's bordered by mountains, so it kind of protects it most of the time from wind. So it's just like, just like a sea of glass. I mean, it's just absolutely smooth, except for when a storm blows through. When a storm blows through, it acts like a wind tunnel. It just absolutely decimates it, just turns it, just, just water just churning. But this, this place here, it was just a it was just a, buzz, uh, just a buzzing place. It was just, just a, a busy place full of activity. We read from historians that around this time, around the time Jesus would have been there in the first century, this little bitty lake, this teeny tiny sea, there would have been as many as 500 boats on it at any one time. This was just a, just a, a fertile place where there was fish to be had. The, the primary fish there are tilapia, um, carp, and sardines. And you would catch them by the boatload, literally the boatload there, and they would ship them off. They would ship them north to Syria. They would ship them, ship them south to Egypt. And so there was, a, there was just a ton of activity going on here. And this really made this the perfect place for Jesus to spend much of his time because he was far enough removed from Jerusalem. He was far enough removed from the religious elite, the kind of people that would want to take his life, that he didn't give up his life one second sooner than it was time. But in addition to that, he surrounded himself with the exact kind of people that he was going to make his call to. The exact kind of people that were going to be drawn to him. The exact kind of people that were going to recognize their need. That would recognize their slavery. That would recognize their sin. That would recognize their fear. And so Jesus was exactly where he needed to be for this time. And so scripture tells us, though, that he was passing along. And he sees Peter and his brother Andrew there. And they're casting their nets. We, we talked about this. That these would have been big, big nets, big circular nets. And they would have been weighted down either by rocks or by, um, by some kind of metal of some sort. And they would have just unfurled it. Just kind of spun it out there just opening it up, and it would sink to the bottom. And while going down, it would trap fish underneath it. They would gather it up, pull it in, and they would have their fish there. Now, it tells us here that they were doing this because they were fishermen. This wasn't just a hobby for them. This was their career. This is what they did for a living. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I need you to recognize the difference in this call. You see, he wasn't wandering around the scene. He wasn't saying, Hey, would anybody here like to follow me? Anybody like to follow me today? No, he sought these two men out. He's coming along the sea, and he goes directly to these two men, and he says, you, Andrew, you, Peter, follow me. I need you to see the authority in this call. I need you to see the difference. One was a request. Repent, believe, be saved. This was a different call. This was one with authority, looking into the eyes of another and saying, you will follow me. And there was never a doubt, right? They had freedom. They had full freedom. They had the right to go, nah, I think we're good, Jesus. But there was never a doubt. 
There was never a doubt that they were going to turn and that they were going to follow after him. This was like a king summoning his subjects. There was never a doubt that they were going to turn and they were going to come after him. Now, the substance of the call is really the same. You see, what he was calling them to was to repentance and to belief. The subject of the call is really the same. The difference is, for those that he has placed his eye upon, for those that he has sought out, for those that he has called in this way, there's never a doubt as to how they're going to respond. Because what we know based on Scripture is that he has gone before and he has prepared them. This is like the sowing of seed, right? We talked about that in the parable of the sower. It's like the sowing of seed. What determines what happens with that seed? Some seed produces great fruit. Some, some seed produces nothing. The difference is the condition of the soil. And we know that Jesus has gone before, that God by his spirit, his spirit to our spirit, that he has gone before and he's awakened us. He's given us eyes to see him. It's beautiful. It's something to be delighted in. Ears to truly hear this call. That we could understand his voice, that we could know his voice. That he's gone before and he's prepared our heart so that as this seed is sowed, it's guaranteed to produce fruit. As he makes this call, we're guaranteed to turn and respond. And that's what we see here with Peter and Andrew, that they hear this call. It's a personal call to them. It's a call like a shepherd calling after his sheep. We read in John 10, 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a guaranteed. It's guaranteed that the desired response of the caller will come because the God who calls is the God who chooses. The God who chooses is the God who calls, and the God who calls does not call in vain. Listen to the words here, Romans 8.30. Those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. How precious is this call that leads to glory? This thing that begins as a call, it sounds like everybody else's call. Would you repent? Would you believe? Would you come into this kingdom? And yet for those whose hearts have been prepared, for those that he's cast his eye upon, for those that get this call follow me, it's guaranteed to end in glory. And along the way, you read other things that he's calling us to. 1 Peter 2, 9 says that he's called us from darkness into marvelous light. Galatians 5, 3 says that we've been called to freedom. What did we just sing about? 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says that we've been called into fellowship with Christ. Romans 1, 6 says that we've been called to belong to Christ, to be loved by God, and to be his saints. This is an incredible call. To heed his call carries with it blessing beyond anything we could ever imagine. He goes on. In verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. This immediate obedience, this immediate obedience, driven by trust, driven by faith, immediately they obeyed him. You see, because this wasn't just a call to conversion. There was conversion at this point. That, that is what's happening there. They're repenting. They're believing. They're receiving eternal life. Right here at this moment, they're being saved. But this was more than that. This was also a call to discipleship. And discipleship begins, continues, and ends with obedience. Right here at the beginning, there had to be obedience because what he was calling them to was a life of, life of discipleship. Now, do we read here that Peter and Andrew had some particular passion for Jesus' ministry? I don't know. It doesn't say that. Do we believe that Andrew and Peter had some great grasp on who it was Jesus was and, and what it was he was doing? I don't think so. Even at the end of his life, they didn't understand it. That wasn't what the question was at this point. He called, will you go? He called, will you obey? What they knew was this was a man I want to follow. This is the one that we've been waiting for, and we want to follow him. We don't even know what following him looks like in this moment. We certainly don't understand how this thing's going to work out, but we know that we want him, and we know that his call is worthy of heeding. And so his disciples go. When Jesus calls, his disciples respond. They obey. So he called, and they went. Verse 19, and going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus goes a little bit further. He finds these other two dudes. Again, there would have been hundreds of dudes on this water. He was seeking these four. 
He walked past the others to get to these men. And then when he calls them, he finds them here. They had a lot going on. They were in their father's boat. They were there with hired servants. Again, they had a full-fledged fishing operation. This was a business. This was a business that these people were leaving to follow after Jesus. And I think this is critical for us to understand this morning. Because I'm afraid that for many of us, we look backwards at the apostles. We look backwards at the first century disciples. And I think that we somehow get it in our heads they had nothing to lose. These were just a bunch of sad sacks and losers. A bunch of ne'er-do-wells. And they didn't have anything to lose. Why not follow after Jesus? Maybe they're all just sitting around eating dust and mud. And all of a sudden Jesus comes along. Why not? We tried this other stuff and it doesn't work. But that's not what we see with these guys. Now listen, we only hear about calling of seven of the twelve. But we see that these were real people with real lives. In the case of these four guys, these were men with businesses. They were men with families. We read about that James and John were there with their father, Zebedee. They had a mother named Salome that we'll read about later in the Gospels. We know that for sure Peter had a wife because he had a mother-in-law. It's funny how that works, right? You don't get a mother-in-law without a wife. And so we know for sure that he had a family and he had a house and he had a business. Yet this was the call that Jesus made for them. He wasn't, he wasn't calling a bunch of losers. He wasn't, no, they weren't, un, they weren't educated in the law. These weren't some kind of religious leaders. They didn't fully understand necessarily what the gospel call meant in that moment, but they weren't leaving nothing. They were leaving something, a real life that really mattered. And as a matter of fact, their obedience to this call, it wasn't just going to have an effect in their life. It was going to affect the other people around them. It was going to affect people that loved them. It was going to affect people that worked for them. This call of obedience, this call to discipleship, that's why Jesus, is, he, he, hear the words that Peter says to him in Matthew 19, 17. He says, see, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? I think sometimes we believe that we're exempt from this calling because we got too much. I got a business. I got kids. I got a mortgage and a wife. I can't possibly go. But he calls and you go. So the question is, what's the deal? Is this the first time? Like they just meet Jesus for this first time, and all of a sudden he calls and they pack up and go? N not exactly. You see, if, if, turn back with me to John 1.35. Go ahead and do that, please, in your Bibles. It does me good to know you know how to swing your sword. Or at least that you know where your sword still is. So go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to John 1.35. And, and, and there's, there's, there's more to the story here, right? So we see this is after Jesus' baptism, but he, he, he's, he's, he's headed to Jerusalem, and, and he comes to a town called Bethany. And I'm in John 1, 35. The next day, I'll let y'all, everybody there? Very good, very good. So John uh, 1, 35 through 42. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two that heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is Peter. So look now. Jesus has already met these guys. How do we know that these are two different stories? Well, number one, we know because of the setting. We know because of where these people are at. They're not up here north on the Sea of Galilee. They're down here in Bethany on the river. We know because John is there, and John is the one pointing them towards Jesus. Remember in Mark 1, we've already read that John had been arrested. 
So John couldn't have been here pointing these people back towards Jesus. This was a different encounter, and it was a significant encounter. We don't know how long these guys followed after Jesus. We know that there was Andrew. We know that there was Peter. And, and, and it's, there's kind of a good reason to believe that that second disciple there was John. John had this knack for never mentioning his own name in his gospel. Typically, he would mention who it was that was there, but you get to John's gospel, he never mentions himself. And so there's a decent chance that that was John that was there as well. But these men, whoever they were, they were there, and they were with Jesus, and they followed him, at least through that day. Maybe they went with him to the wedding in Cana. They say some disciples went with Jesus there. So these people had already had an encounter with Jesus, significant enough encounter that Jesus changed Peter's name. He changed his name from Simon to Peter. And so we know for sure that they had already met him. We know for sure that he was... He was not just a complete stranger to them at this moment. And then flip backwards. Go ahead, and, go ahead and keep flipping backwards to your left. Go to Luke 5. You'll find there in Luke 5 that there's another encounter. And now I've, I've, I've told you before that these gospel writers, they don't always go in sequential order, okay? We acknowledge that, that, there's, that they're not always following the same sequence. And that while, while Mark makes it a little bit easier because he uses the word immediately, 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 We'll find with Luke in this passage that we're about to, about to read, he doesn't use that exact same phrase. He, he just talks about it sometime, another time, one time, this thing happened. But, but I really do hope that you're, that you're tracking with me here. So we get to Mark 5. If, you, if you're reading the chapters before Mark, uh, excuse me, Luke 5. If you're reading the chapters before Luke 5, what you'll see is that Luke and Mark are tracking together perfectly. They talk about Jesus going into the synagogue and healing a man with a demon. They talk about Jesus going into Peter's house and healing his mother. They talk about Jesus and Peter and the boys going on a tour around Galilee. So they're tracking together perfectly, and then we come to this verse, just dropped into Luke. We don't read this anywhere else. We're right here in Luke. Luke 5, 1 through 10. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in to hear the words of God, and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, by the way, that's the Sea of Galilee. Luke wasn't very impressed, I don't think, by the Sea of Galilee, because Luke had done some traveling, so Luke just calls it a lake. So he's there by the, by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats was a man, Simon. He, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down my nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, and they filled both boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at, his, at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So look, there, there's some differences here. There's some differences that, we, that, that I believe show us these are two different accounts. That the account in Mark 1, it's also found in the book of Matthew, that this, found, this account that we find here in Luke 5, I believe they're different. Here's why. There's some differences that we can, just, we can just say, okay, we can deal with those. Like the fact that one time it's called a lake, one time it's called a sea. We've already, we've already dealt with that. Or the, or, or the fact that they talk about Andrew. Mark talks about Andrew being there in his account, but Luke doesn't reference him in his. Look, that's not a big deal. You can reference who was in a room, who was in, who was in a scene differently. But there's some things that I think are much much bigger, that make it very less likely that this is, this is the same story. One of those is the fact that we read here about Jesus teaching. We read about the crowds pressing in on him in Luke. We don't read about that in Mark. In Mark, it says, it says Jesus is going along. Could he have been teaching while he was going along? I suppose, but he doesn't say that. In addition to that, in Luke's story, we read that these men are done fishing. They had been fishing all night, and they were done fishing, and they were there 
washing their nets, getting ready for the next day. Whereas in Mark's, they're actively fishing. Could that be the same story? I, I, I guess, maybe. In addition to that, we don't read anything about Peter's boat, much less that Peter was in the boat with Christ, yet we read that in Luke's gospel. In addition to that, and I think the biggest issue, is this catching of the fish, this miraculous catching of the fish. That Jesus did something so phenomenal, something, a, a, a miracle, that catches Peter's attention so much so that he falls down and asks Jesus to depart from him. I think there's just too much evidence here for me to believe that these are the two stories. I think these are three different encounters. I sincerely believe that these are three different encounters. Now, I don't think that your salvation is going to fall apart if you disagree with me. I don't think I'm going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to close the door on me because I misunderstood this. But I do think there's something to be learned here because if I'm right, what's happened here is there are three encounters. There are th one call, three encounters. The men were obedient at every single step of the way. That The call was the same. Follow me. Follow me. And that each step they were obedient with whatever God had called them to do, with whatever Jesus was calling them to in that moment. That what we see here is that at one point, Jesus' call to them was, you're going to follow me, and following me means staying here. That they didn't leave their families. That they didn't leave their business. That they had followed him for a while, but they were still there with the dad. They were still there with the boats. They were still there living very similar lives to the one that he had called them out of. But then there was another time, another, another instance, where to follow him meant to pack up and leave everything. You'll notice that the, at the end of Mark's account, he says that they left their nets. At the end of Luke's, it says that they left everything. And I pray that this is an encouragement to you because what happens is when a preacher gets up and he prays these kind of messages, he talks about, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, our minds immediately go to Peter and the boys packing up and leaving everything. Or your mind immediately goes to missionaries leaving the life they knew and going to the other ends of the earth. And you become discouraged. You think, can I really be following after Jesus if I'm not going anywhere? Well, yes, dear friends, you can. You see, for many of you, the call to follow Jesus is not going to mean some radical change to your vocation or your location. It doesn't mean that he's going to call you to quit your job and leave your family and go to the other ends of the earth. For many of you, it means that you're going to follow him right now. Not a change in your, in your business, not a change in your house. It's going to be changing your worship. No longer are you going to worship yourself, you're now going to worship me. No longer are you going to serve yourself, now you're going to serve me. It's going to be signing over the deed to your life to God right where you are. And if I'm honest, I think that's a harder call. I think for many of us, the call to be a new creation in the same place, surrounded by the same people, is really hard. I think for many of us, it would be a whole lot easier if he would just change our name and send us away. Almost sounds like witness protection. Because the people here know you. And the trouble here knows you. They would love to find you. But for most people, that's what he does. He doesn't call you to pack up and leave. Look, if everybody left, there'd be nobody here, Right? If he called everybody, I guess we get a bunch of new people, but, but then here would just be there, right? So the fact that he's calling you and he's leaving you right there, I pray that you find that as an encouragement. I pray that you're encouraged by the fact that you may not be sinning against God by remaining right where you are. But at the same time, you don't get to make that determination. That a call to follow after Jesus, a call to discipleship, a call to obedience behind what God is calling you to, that you no longer get to call these shots. That he is now the master of your life. That we don't get to say, okay, Jesus, you be Lord of my life in these six areas. Anything between here and here, Jesus, this belongs to you. But my finances, my family, my job, my house, those things belong to me. I'm going to hold those off the table. Jesus is either Lord of all or he never knew you. You either hand it all over to him and say, Jesus, where do I go? Do you have me stay? I'd like to go. You tell me to stay, I'll stay. Do you have me go? I'd like to stay, but you tell me to go, I'll go. Whatever it is, you follow after him. That in his sovereignty, he may see fit to leave you right where you are. He may see fit to allow you to live in the house that you built. 
He may see fit to leave you in a job that you've enjoyed for 30 years. He may see fit to allow your children to go away to a nice college and come back and raise their grandbabies right there within walking distance of your house. He may see fit to allow you to have a few bucks in your pocket, a decent truck, and a roof over your head at all times. Or he may not. He may call you to give up every bit of that. He may call you to leave this job that you thought you would never leave. He may call you to hand your children over to the ministry and trust that he's going to lead them exactly where he wants them. He may call you to sell the house, to sell the truck. He may call you to cash in every single chip you have, every single thing you cherish. He may call you to cash it all in for the sake of the kingdom. And we don't get to call the shots. We don't even get to know ahead of time what that call looks like. You see, when he comes along and he says, follow me, we don't get to know what the end of this thing looks like. We don't get to say, well, Jesus, where are you going? Show me what the next step is. He said, no, how about you be obedient now? You be obedient now and you trust me that my way is better. But I'm not going to show you the path. I'm not going to show you the end of this thing. You're going to follow me today or you're never going to follow me at all. And so his call to obedience means that we don't get to ask. And so that's the question. Follow me. Christian, are you following Christ? You're following Christ right where you are. Or have you spent so much time wondering about where he's calling you that you forgot to follow him right here? Are you always looking down the line at the next thing? Jesus, where are, you, where are you leading me next? Where am I following you to next? Or do you say, how about I follow you right now? And I trust you with the next. Are you following Christ? Are you truly following Christ? Are you just asking him to tag along? Like some kind of holy tinkerbell. Just come alongside me and I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be Lord of my life. I'm going to worship the God of self. And I want you to just bless me along the way. I want you to just drag me out of a ditch. Are you following Christ? Are you following Christ? When he's called you, follow me. Are you following after him? Are you yelling, nah, you know what, Jesus? Why don't you follow me? I like where I'm going. Are you following him? Knowing that following may mean you sit right here, but that you're something new. But knowing there's also the chance that following him may mean that he leads you to the exact place you don't want to go. The place that you're sitting here right now, because I know there's some of you right now that have a tightness in your chest because I've sat there. There's some of you right now that have a tightness in your chest because there's that one place you don't want to go. Maybe not physically. Maybe it's just an area of service. Maybe it's something he's calling you to let loose of. That there's that one thing that is causing tightness in your chest and you're going, please God, don't look there. That may well be exactly where he leads you to go. That following him may mean exactly the place that you don't want to go. But dear friends, I need you to hear me. I need you to hear me well. It is better. Better than what? Everything. Anything. Anything this world has to offer, it's better. Anything you can build on your own, it's better. Anything you can imagine in your mind, it's better. His way is always better. Better like treasure is better than dung. Better than a pearl of great price is better than trash. That we count it all as loss for the sake of knowing him. Indeed, we, we write it all off because we know that it's nothing compared to him. That we so delight in him, that we so treasure him, that we so cherish him, that nothing can compare to him. And I need you to hear me again, dear friends. Listen very closely. If you plan to follow after Christ, you'd better want Christ. Because you're going to lose a whole lot of other stuff. If Christ is not what you want, turn back now. If Christ is, not, Christ is not your treasure, turn back now. Because the other things that you're treasuring, he's going to call you up against those. He's going to call you to let loose of those. So if he's not what you want, if he's not enough, if he's not the one that you're going to delight in, turn back now. James was beheaded. 
Peter and Andrew, they were crucified upside down. These men gave their lives. John was the only one we think probably lived a nice long life. Listen, you may not be martyred, but he's going to push you up against this thing. And if you don't cherish him above everything else, if he's not your truest, truest delight, you're going to have some real tough choices to make. So we write it all off today. We don't wait to see what he's going to call us to later. We don't say, I'm going to follow you, and then at each step of the way, I'm going to figure out whether this is a trade I'm willing to make. We stand here today, and we say, we give it all today. We count it all as loss today, whatever it is. But what if? Yep, that too. Every single thing you have, you count it all as lost. You sign it all over to him. You count it all as gone. That money is gone anyway. That life is gone anyway. That job is gone anyway. That truck is gone anyway. My kids are gone anyway. It's all gone so that when he calls for it, you're like, yeah, it's already gone. Take it. Go. But if you don't want that, then, brother, I got no friend. I got, I got no help for you. Because the call to follow Jesus is going to be a call of loss. It's going to be a call of suffering. You see, there is no way to the Father apart from the Son. There is no way to the Son apart from following. There is no way to follow that doesn't include suffering. There is nobody that gets out of this thing unscathed. There is nobody that gets to the end of this thing without pain, without suffering, without loss. So count it all as loss today. The world has lied to us. Preachers have lied to us. They've told us we could have both. But you can cling tightly to this. And you can also have Jesus. And he says you can't. He promises you can't. I've tried to live that life. It's the worst. It is misery to try to cling to these things that he's called you to let loose of. These things that you've sworn you've let loose of. And yet to continue to cling to them. Because I didn't truly cherish him. I didn't truly delight. I didn't truly mean it when I said it. Or maybe I thought I meant it. When he said that you need to follow me. So we sign it all over today. Trusting that the way really is that narrow. There really are that few people that find it. Dear friends, there's, there's things that we do in this church that try to push you up against that. There's things that we do in this church to try to push you up against God's call to let loose of things. You'll notice that in the life of Jesus, he preached about money just about more than anything else because he knows that real treasure, that, 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 that this, this physical money, these things that we, we call treasure here on earth, that it's that one that's always clamoring for us. It's always dragging us away. It's always calling our name. That for many people, we don't even have to be told. We don't even have to turn to the scripture to know that where our treasure is, there our heart is. Not only does our treasure follow our heart, but our heart follows our treasure. So for some of you, it's as simple as that. You're holding on to stuff that he's called you to let loose of. When it comes time to put your money where your mouth is, you, you hold that back. You say, Jesus, I'll, I'll serve you here. I'll love you here. I'll pray for you here. But keep your hands out of my pocket. And as a pastor, I've been here a year and a half. I've not preached about giving much, have I? I've not talked about it all that much. But dear friends, I'm telling you, you cannot follow after Jesus Christ as your Lord. You cannot obey him. You cannot go all in for the kingdom while you rob from him, while you steal from him. Well, this is an area where your heart's not right. Get right. It's easy. Get right. He goes on. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, while we may not know exactly where this call of Christ is going to lead us, we know without a shadow of doubt, it's going to mean that we are fishing for men. Now, from earthly terms, to fish, to, to, to fish, you grab fish out of the water, what you're doing is you're pulling them out to kill them and to eat them. In the heavenly terms, you're catching these fish, you're catching these men that they may be saved. 
You're not catching them to take their life. You're catching them to give them new life. You're catching them that you may call them to repent and believe. You're calling them to also be disciples. That was Christ's plan all along. His plan all along was he was going to make disciples, and those disciples were then going to go and make other disciples. That was always the plan. He had no plan B. He didn't say, I'll be back if y'all wreck this. Don't make me come back down there. What he says is, when I come back, it's game over. He said, while I'm gone, your job is to be disciples that go out and make disciples. So that's what he did. He made a few hundred disciples, not just the 12. If God wills, when we get to Mark 6, we're going to talk about the difference between a disciple and an apostle. I find that there's a lot of people that don't really understand the difference between those two things. That not all disciples were apostles, but all apostles were disciples. You are disciples. And that he has called just these few hundred people to go out there, and that in their hands he entrusted this gospel. And that their job was to go out and make more disciples. The plan was always one of multiplication. And so we know that he left these disciples here and he made them a promise. He made the promise here in Acts 1, verse 8. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit when it has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit would come, that he would equip these people, he would empower them to take the same call, the same message, the same truth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God's word, they would go out and make more disciples. That's it. It's simple. Multiplication. Multiplication. That each of you that have been called to be disciples, you're then called to go out and make disciples. That every single believer in this room, if you trace your lineage back, your spiritual lineage, if you trace it back, you trace it back to these folks. You know, we like to get on Ancestry.com and we like to look at our family tree. I can't wait for heaven when I get to look up and God shows me, how did, how did this happen? That day that I was called. Trace it all the way back. That there was some lady there in that room. There was some lady there amongst the original disciples and she had gone and shared the gospel here. She made this disciple who made these ten, who made these, who made these, who made these, and then here. I use that one to call you. I use that one to call you. That we owe our lineage, our spiritual lineage, right back to this point. That it all began then. Your salvation goes back to this point, And yet you've been called to something more than salvation. We're, again, we're not just called to be converts. This isn't just punching your get-out-of-hell-free card. He's called you to be a disciple. How do I know he's called you to be a disciple? Listen to the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How does the beginning of a disciple what does the beginning of public discipleship look like? Baptizing. That when you come and you are baptized, when you come into these waters, you make this public profession of faith. You make this per first public step that says, I want to be a part of the church. This is also your first public acknowledgement that you want to be a disciple. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you, even unto the end of the age. That's it. That he has called you to be a disciple. He has called you to be a follower. That's all it means to be a disciple. When he says, follow me, he's saying, be a disciple. Lots of people had disciples. John had disciples. Aristotle had disciples. Plato had disciples. All teachers had disciples. But Jesus was doing more than coming to teach people something. He was doing more than just coming to spread knowledge throughout the earth. He was coming to spread citizens for the kingdom throughout the earth. There were people here that weren't bowing down to the king. There were people here that weren't citizens of heaven. There were people here that were trapped. They were enslaved. They were slaves of sin. They were slaves of Satan. He came to free people. That those people may fill the earth. And that's what he did here. And he called us to be those kind of disciples. Disciples that make disciples. Royal ambassadors, as Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry of reconciliation has been given to us. This is in Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, entrusted to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. He also calls us a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Church, I realize that many churches, this one included at times, we've given you the impression that the job of evangelism, the job of making disciples, that it was reserved for a special few. Only those special people that have been called, only those special people that have been set apart. Or perhaps it's a job of evangelism, it's just a thing that happens within this program. It happens between these certain hours on these certain day of the week. We've given you the false impression that you weren't enough, that you didn't have enough, that you weren't equipped enough, that you weren't in the right place. And yet that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that he has called us all, that the real purpose in all this was he has called us to make disciples. And I know all the arguments. I know all the arguments. I know the argument. Well, I just don't feel called to do this. Look, I don't see Peter being called to do this. He heard the, vo the vocal call of the Lord, but within his heart, did he have some deep desire to fish? He said, I've been doing this all night, Jesus, and it ain't working. I've already tried this. I'm tired. He says the word, I'm tired. It's been all night. Why would I go out and do this? But here's the thing. You don't fish in your own authority. It's in Jesus' authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So that when Peter pushed out, it was just obedience. He said, I'm just going to be obedient in this. And by the authority of the one who calls, the authority of the one who's told me to go and be a fisher of men, by his authority the fish will come. It's only by his authority. It's not that Peter all of a sudden became an excellent fisherman. It's not all of a sudden he had some new passion for fishing. He said, this is the one I committed to follow. He called me to fish, so I'm going to fish. There's plenty of days I don't feel like fishing. There's plenty of days I tried fishing and didn't catch anything. There's plenty of times I look up and I go, I must be the worst fisherman ever. Sometimes I wonder if I even know what fishing means. Then there's other times I sit around and I talk a whole lot about fishing and I never get in a boat. I can tell you what all the fancy lures are. I can tell you where all the good fishing spots are. I'm a teacher of fish. I'm here to equip you people to go fish. But I don't see that. I'm equipping you. I'm calling you to get busy and go doing this. I know the other, the other argument. You know, I'm not called to really go out there and share the gospel. I'm just called to go out there and live like a Christian so that other people will be saved. Don't flatter yourself. You ain't that holy. Does your walk need to match your talk? Of course. Absolutely. Don't discredit yourself and ruin your witness. At the same time, what does it mean to live like a Christian? How about we go back to the original Christians? How about you go back and you look at the life of those that are here? You look at the lives of the people that are playing out before you in the book of Acts, like the Samaritan woman there at the well. Jesus comes to her. He saves her right there, and what does she do? She charges into town. She charges into town, and she tells others, and she brings them, and a full revival breaks out. The 120 people that were there in that upper room. We read in the book of Acts 8, you know, we read about these early churches. We don't know who planted all these early churches, but we read about one specific scenario in Acts 8 where Stephen has been stoned. He's been martyred for the sake of the gospel. Stephen has died. And then what Scripture says is that all the believers there in Jerusalem were scattered except the apostles, except the people that you expect to go and spread the gospel, except the people you expect to go out and plant these churches, except the special guys that were called apart and given special authority. Everybody except them went out and was preaching all along the way. They were preaching the truth everywhere they went. That God dropped this bomb right in the middle of the church of Jerusalem to scatter the people. And all the people went and all the people shared. So what about new believers? What do we do with baby believers? Are they called to make disciples too? Listen, fair enough. There was some time of, of training in the, in the life of, of Christ. And he was training these people. and He was walking with them. And he was building them up. Now I do believe that we've got 
Everybody, at the moment of their salvation, I do believe that absolutely everybody is called at that moment to be willing and able to go out and share their gospel testimony. Again, we see it with the woman at, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She immediately takes off. I do believe that. But I also do believe that there's training that is necessary. Again, remember now, is disciples making disciples. That there's a making process. That there's a training process. That's part of why God's called you into this church. You see, while the call to go out and make disciples, the call to obedience to Christ, it is an individual call, and each one of us will respond on our own. Each one of us will stand before God and answer for what we've done with this gospel message. He hasn't called you to do it alone. He has called you into a body. So this disciple-making process, that's part of what we do here. When you leave this place and you go to your Sunday school room, guess what's happening in there? There's discipling happening in there. Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, you go to a men's Bible study. What's happening there? Same thing with the women's Bible studies. Same thing with many of you as you get together to have coffee, as you talk over the phone, as you share emails. It's discipling. It's training. It's not as fancy as somebody told you. You don't have to wear a funny hat. You don't have to talk a funny language. It's getting around and talking about the things that God has done in your life, talking about the things that God has called us to do in his word, and then pushing each other up against that. That's what this is meant to look like. And so for many of you, you're sitting out there and you're going, but look, I don't feel equipped. I still don't feel equipped. Fair enough. Call me. Call me. 832-233-1811. Oh, this is being simulcast. You people don't call me. You people call me. We will hook you up. We will hook you up. We'll make certain that you know all that you need to know to go out there and make disciples. Spoiler alert, it's a whole lot less than you thought. We promise you that God has called you here for a reason. And part of the reason he's called you here is not just that you would be a disciple, not just that you would grow in your discipleship, but that you too would make disciples. And that's our job, is to train you in this. And so I, I want to encourage you. But the truth of the matter is, there's so many of you out there, it's not that you don't feel equipped, it's not that you don't have enough, it's just you don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Listen, we talk about these, what about these new believers? Most of you aren't new believers. What about these people that don't know the Bible? Most of you people know the Bible. So let's let God worry about them. Let's talk about you for a minute. What excuse do you have for not making disciples? I don't like to knock on doors. Okay, don't knock on doors. Only weird people like to knock on doors. I'm one of those weird people. I don't like to talk to strangers. Okay, maybe not. But God has called you and he's put you in a place and the reason he's called you to that place, the reason he's called you to this church, he's put you in your job, he's put you in your neighborhood is that you could make disciples. That this multiplication would happen through you. You have no excuse. You have no reason. You have no out card. He's called you to do it, so let's get busy doing it. Master called, let's respond. Master ordered, let's obey. Dear friends, I'm convinced with everything in me that if just the people in this room we're a church of about 650 active, something like that. I'm looking at just you 200 or whatever you are. If just the 200 people in this room, if you would take this call seriously, what change do you think would happen in Crosby, Texas? If you just got intentional? If you just went to work tomorrow and you thought, I'm here to make a disciple. God, show me what that means. Show me what that looks like. You don't think that would change this entire community? And then the people that you've led to Christ, the people that you've discipled in Christ, as God then calls them away somewhere, and they go change another community. Dear friends, we've been called to spread this thing to the ends of the earth. We have all the resources in the world to spread this thing to the ends of the earth. The question is not resources. The question is not knowledge. The question is not ability. The question is desire. So let's man up and do it. Father God, we praise you and we thank you.
We thank you that you've been chosen to include us in your work. We thank you, Father, that um, you've called us into a body. That we're not lone soldiers out there trying to figure this thing alone. That, Father, you've called us into a body where we can build each other up, we can support each other, we can spur each other on. Father, I thank you that you have not forsaken me the times when I've failed to do exactly this. Father God, I stand here as a man that has failed more times than I've succeeded. I have refused to do the things that you've called me to do. I have refused to fish for men. I have refused to disciple all for the sake of my comfort, all for the sake of my reputation, all for the sake of the God of me. Father, I thank you that you didn't wipe me out in that moment. I thank you that you're not done with me yet. Father, I thank you that you're not done with this people either. Father, I pray that you would encourage us all, that you would show us, Father, that this is the very reason for our existence, is to bring you honor, to bring you glory, to bring others to worship you by sharing the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to be obedient in that. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.